0: Good morning to you all. At um, Lee Brown's recent funeral, Helen Slaymaker gave uh, a tribute, uh, during which she described an incident to demonstrate Lee's love for dogs. Uh, he was taking a, a mangy, flea-ridden Rottweiler to a dog shelter because um, its owner had to go into hospital and could no longer look after it. And she, uh, Helen described uh, the sight of Lee in the back of this car cuddling this uh, disgusting-looking specimen. Um, of course, he never got to the shelter. Uh, he and Sheila ended up uh, uh, adopting it. And in my address, I refer to Lee's faith and compared Lee's love for that dog um, with Jesus' love for us. Because compared to, to Jesus' moral perfection, his holiness... We are all just like mangy flea ridden dogs. The amazing thing is, is that God still loves us and He's willing to, to embrace us, to adopt us into His family. And that is what grace is all about. But the truth is that unless we, we see ourselves as we really are, we will never fully understand grace. And we will never therefore enter God's kingdom. If we just think of ourselves as um, fairly decent with a few rough edges, we'll never see our need for Jesus as our saviour. We're doing a sermon series on kingdom values. How do we enter the kingdom of heaven? And how do we live as citizens of that kingdom? The last time we looked at the, uh, the story of the rich young ruler who asked this question. He said, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And we said that this question revealed a misunderstanding of God's kingdom. He thought he had to do something to deserve entry. But as Jesus pointed out, what he was looking for were people who accepted they couldn't earn their way into that kingdom. But were humble enough to trust that Jesus has done everything for them. And were willing to give up everything to follow him. His entry into God's kingdom relies on his grace, his undeserved love, as we've been looking at this morning. Grace is the most amazing thing. It can take the most morally repugnant person we can think of and make them beautiful in the sight of God. There is no one beyond God's power to change. Trouble is, uh, that if, if we are Christians here this morning, if we accept that it's by God's grace that we are saved... There's still a part of us that thinks that we're somehow deserving of God's love. There's still a pride within us that needs to be rooted out. And often it's so subtle that um, we're not even aware of it. Which is why Jesus tells this parable to reveal what is in our hearts. Because if we were asked, how have you been saved? We would probably say, well, by God's grace. But when we read this parable, there's something in it that says, that's not fair, is it? And what that reveals to us is um, that we haven't fully grasped God's grace. Because there are two negative attitudes mentioned in this passage. Grumbling and envy. And I'm sure no one here would say they, they never grumble or they're never envious. But it's that grumbling and that envy that reveal in our hearts a lack of grace. So let's pray this morning that God would reveal to us our hearts and that he would do a work of change in us. Let's pause for a moment just to pray that he would speak to us now. Father God, we do come to you this morning knowing that um, it is only by your grace that we are saved and can be changed and we need your grace now. We need you to work in us. So as we study your word together, Lord, speak to us. Reveal our hearts to us. Reveal those things that you want to get rid of. And make us willing to be changed. Make us aware of our dependence on you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finished the uh, the passage uh, last time at the end of chapter 19. If you've got your Bibles there in front of you. and We had that rich young man going away sad because he didn't feel able to give up all his wealth. And then Peter asked the question, we have left everything to follow you. What then will happen to us? And Jesus reassured his disciples that those who had left everything for him would receive a hundred times as much and would inherit eternal life. And he ended with the words, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first." And he now goes on in chapter 20 to explain what he means by that by telling this parable. Now in the parable there's a landowner who we're told goes out early in the morning to the marketplace. And that's where he's going to hire workers for his vineyard. Presumably it's harvest time, maybe he needs to get all the the grapes picked before um, uh, some bad weather comes uh, along and the fruit is destroyed. Reminds me of when I grew up in, in Essex, um, fruit picking was a great way of earning income as a, as a teenager. And you'd go and wait in a certain place with a whole load of other people for the lorry to come along. And um, then you'd all jump on the back in the days before health and safety and um, be taken off to the fruit farms. And uh, in our situation, we got paid for the amounts that we picked, um, which didn't um, uh, work well for all of us. Um, but it was a good incentive to work hard. But in this parable here, the workers are paid for the, for the time that they are worked. And a day's wage of one denarius was agreed with those first workers. But of course the landowner, we're told, doesn't have enough workers, so he keeps going back at three hourly intervals to get some more workers. And this is in days obviously before watches and mobile phones, uh, when people told the time by the position of the sun. And the day was roughly divided into four periods of three hours each, uh, from six to six, morning to evening. So when the landowner goes back each time to get some more workers, we're told he doesn't actually agree a wage with those other ones. He just promises to pay whatever is right, and they trust him. And we're told the last batch of workers were hired at five in the afternoon, so they wouldn't have worked very long at all. At the end of the day, they all come together, they're given their wage, uh, there's no British sort of uh, discreetness in this, no envelopes, uh, everyone sees what everybody else is being paid. And those hired last get paid first. So the workers who've been working longer see that they get paid a denarius, and they're thinking, that's what we agreed to be paid for the whole day. I guess we must be expecting a little bit more then. But we're told in verse 10, if you look down, that each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. On the one hand, their complaint seems reasonable, doesn't it? As it goes on in verse 12, those who were hired first, those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But what the landowner replies is also quite true. He says, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? That was the amount we agreed, so why are you complaining? Take your pay, he says, and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. So what are we to, to make of this little parable then? Well, the first thing is we are saved by grace. A vineyard is a common image in the Bible to describe God's people. Uh, those in his kingdom. And those he was telling the parable to it would have been familiar with that, with that image. So the landowner, the vineyard owner represents God. And the workers represent his people. Now, the point of the parable here is not to take every point too literally, but to understand understand the main message. So when Jesus talks about the landowner wanting to hire workers for his vineyard, it doesn't mean God pays people to come into the kingdom or anything like that. Uh, But taking different workers on at different times of the day represents how he welcomes different people into his kingdom at different times. He doesn't interview the workers. He doesn't ask them how many grapes can they pick in a day. Also, it doesn't look like they have any other options. When he asks some of them why they've been standing around all day, um, they reply, because no one has hired us. We had no other option. So in the same way the workers are totally dependent on the landowner hiring them, we are totally dependent on God deciding to allow us into his kingdom. And when it comes to paying them, this is not about workers' rights or minimum pay or anything like that. It's an analogy about grace. All the workers represent those who have been saved. And the point is, to be saved is a great gift that we haven't deserved. The fact that the disciples were first to be saved, they they gave up everything for Jesus, they they were with him 24-7 for three years of their lives, doesn't mean they had any greater claim on Jesus than the thief on the cross with his dying words he said to Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus replied truly I tell you today you'll be with me in paradise the criminal entered God's kingdom he did nothing to deserve it Uh, he couldn't even have done anything afterwards to show his gratitude for it but the thing is, neither did the disciples do anything to deserve it. They were simply called earlier. Now the Pharisees would have been envious of the disciples because they'd spent their whole lives trying to obey all the rules, many of which they'd made up themselves, to, to make themselves right with God. They were pleased with themselves. Um, so they wouldn't have understood why Jesus, if he really was the Son of God would call a bunch of of unimpressive fishermen, tax collectors, and other sinners to follow him. And the whole point of the parable is that grace is a free gift. Whether we receive it early in our lives and live the rest of our lives in gratitude to God, or we receive it late in our lives, having wasted our lives pursuing other things, makes no difference to where we will spend eternity. We will both be welcomed into God's kingdom. We will both receive God's riches. And the reason we will receive them is because they are at Christ's expense. He sacrificed his life to pay the penalty for our sins. So we can be forgiven. So we can be made right with God. As it says in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That he has lavished on us. That is God's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Riches that he's lavished on us. That he's poured out with great generosity. So why might we be envious of someone who comes to faith late in life? Or why might we grumble about someone who doesn't seem to be good enough to be a Christian? Well, if that is the case, it's because we've misunderstood grace. We'll come back to that as we come on to our next point. Because not only are we saved by grace, but also our maturity, our ministry, our service are a result of God's grace. Now you may be someone who's been coming to this church for 20, 30, 40 or more years. Um, And over that time you may have given thousands of pounds to the Lord's work. You may have given thousands of hours of your time in service. You may have served on all sorts of teams. Um, you may have been a leader in the church. But are you ever tempted to be maybe resentful about how much you have served, while others just seem to take it, take it easy, don't pull their weight, or uh, they just don't fully appreciate how much you do? Or maybe you're a little bit envious about someone who's doing a role that you would have liked to have done but were never asked to do. Do you ever maybe just look down on those who are not fully committed to the church, who don't turn up as often as you do, um, who don't serve as much as you do, who are never at the prayer meetings when you are there praying yourself? Now don't get me wrong, I'd love to see uh, more people being committed, serving more, attending more, being more prayerful. But why is it that we do those things? I would hope that it's because we are so grateful for what Jesus has done for us that we want to use the gifts he's given us to serve him. We are so dependent on him. We want to come to him and pray. We want to see more change in the lives of others. We're so grateful for everything that God has done. It's because he is our Lord, he is our master, that we are willing to give up everything for him. We want to become more like him. And so we do that with, with great joy, with great humility. And if that is you, then then give thanks to God for the grace that has brought you to that point of maturity. And pray that others would know that same grace at work in their lives. And the trouble is, if we're honest, there is something in all of us that from time to time makes us feel a little bit resentful. Um, a little bit like these workers grumbling in the in the vineyard, and the reason for that is that there's still part of us that is serving out of duty, and not out of grace. You may know the parable that Jesus tells of the uh, the prodigal son who takes his share of the the father's inheritance and goes off uh, and wastes it uh, on wild living. Eventually, realizes what he's done and uh, uh, comes back to his father. Yeah, he doesn't expect his father to um, to show him any grace, but that is exactly what he does. The father rushes out to meet him. He's overjoyed to see him and organises a big party to celebrate. But this son is is an older brother as well. Uh, And when he hears about what has happened, he becomes angry. He refuses to go and join the party. And when his father goes out to him uh, to find out what is wrong, this is what the, the elder son says to him. He says, look, all these years... I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What is the older son's problem? He's envious because he hasn't understood grace. He's worked hard to somehow earn His inheritance, and he now thinks he deserves it. But as his father says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. It's yours already. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. We will start to, to grumble or become envious when instead of looking upwards to God and all he's done for us, we will look sideways and start to compare ourselves with others. The workers in this parable wouldn't have had a problem if they hadn't known what the others had received. They would have taken their denarius. They would have been agreed with them. They would have gone home happy. It's only when we compare ourselves with others that we somehow get resentful. And that is what sin does, isn't it? I remember working in the bank um, in Brazil when it came to salary review day and um, the members of my um, team would come in, I'd give them their, their letters, uh, tell them what a good job they had done and they would go away happy uh, until they started talking to their, their friends and other departments um, and uh, then began to feel they weren't being rewarded fairly. Fair not being according to the job they had done, but according to the job somebody else had done, they were comparing themselves with. Well, let's come on to our final point, because these are kingdom values we're looking at here. We want to be those who receive grace, and we want to be those who live out grace, who pour it out in our relationships with others. So the next point is we're called to show grace to one another. But what does that look like? In terms of our attitude to those who are not yet Christians, it means loving them. It means remembering the only reason that we are Christians is because of God's grace. There is nothing we have ourselves to boast about. We are no way superior to those who do not share our faith. And we need to be careful that we don't give the impression um, that we are somehow looking down on others. Because often that is what others think about Christians in terms of their attitude towards them. At the same time, you know, we've got a society which is becoming increasingly secularised. We shouldn't feel we have to somehow retreat um, and live an almost sort of secret Christian life, as if people are just not going to get it. You know, we got it, but people just don't understand anymore. They don't get God's grace. There's no point in even trying. God's grace is powerful. We have to engage with those who are not yet Christians. We we need to talk to them about God's grace. We need to show them God's grace in the way we live out our lives. We have to be willing to put ourselves out and face constant rejection. In some recent stats I heard, um, of those who have a Christian friend, and that's a lot of people in this country, one in five apparently would like to know more about Jesus. Now that means that uh, um, four times out of five, our attempts will be faced with rejection, but there will be those there who want to know more. So we need to go and show them God's grace. In terms of how we relate to other Christians, um, again, grace means loving them. So if they're not part of our church, let's be careful not to be critical or judgmental about their way of doing things, let's rejoice in the the grace that we share together. If they are part of our church, then we have a responsibility to to one another. If we are members of this church, one of the commitments we have made is to help each other grow in their faith. Um, And when we see someone growing in their faith, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That's something to really rejoice about. That is God's grace at work. We need to thank God for that and rejoice with them. As the father said to his elder son in that parable, um, he said, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If we have personally um, been involved in helping someone come to faith or helping someone grow in their faith, that is a wonderful privilege. And uh, we can give God thanks for that, for using us in that way. But there are two challenges, aren't there? One is that not everyone will welcome our help. Um, when help is, is refused, often it's because of um, pride, an attitude that says, I'm okay, thank you. I don't really need your, your help. Um, I can deal with this on my own. I don't need you to, to tell me what to do. And however well-meaning your help is, it will sometimes be thrown back in your face. If that's the case, don't take it personally. Um, if you've helped Offered help out of a genuine concern for someone, um, that is the most important thing. Leave it then with God, and trust in His plans for that person. But secondly, not everyone will grow as you would like them to grow. Um, put it another way, not everyone may be as mature as you are in your faith. If you are in a good place for the Lord, thank God for that. That's His grace at work. But don't judge. Don't look down. Don't criticize someone for their apparent lack of maturity. It's a fine line, isn't it, sometimes, between sharing concern for someone with somebody else and, and expressing your frustration um, and gossiping even. And those who are most vulnerable here are those in positions of leadership. And one of the hardest challenges for a leader of a church is when people are not showing grace, um, particularly people who you think should know better. Um, who you expect more of that's a, a discouragement and it will be easy to become then a critical as leaders we have a responsibility for the growth of those under our care um, and sometimes where there is a lack of growth that may be due to our fault maybe we have um, taken our eyes off the ball maybe we've become distracted by other things but often we can be tempted to blame ourselves when actually it's not our fault um, As leaders, we need to be constantly reminded that it's God's work. It's not our work. Our responsibility is to be faithful, as it is for all of us, um, to point people to Jesus. They have to decide whether they will follow him or whether they will go their own way. Fruitfulness in people's lives, the growth of the church depends on grace, God's grace. So do please pray. For your leaders, all those in different areas of responsibility within the church as they struggle to, to work and grow people in God's power. Well, as we come to the end and as we prepare to receive a communion together and celebrate God's grace, let's close by returning to that verse from, from Ephesians. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Jesus shed his blood. He died for you so that you no longer need to be a slave to sin so you can enjoy being forgiven for all your sins. And he did that out of his undeserving love for you. What are you going to do? with his generosity what are you going to do with that gift that gift of forgiveness that is being held out to each one of us here this morning let's pray Father God we do thank you for your wonderful gift of grace that you have lavished on us thank you that it is by your grace that we are saved thank you that it is by your grace that we grow in maturity and in Christ likeness Lord and we Pray that you would continue to do a work of grace in us. Lord, remove any sense of envy, any grumbling. Help us not to look down on others, but to look at others with the same love and grace that you look at them. And help us together to grow as your church. In Jesus' name. Amen.